From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. So, so Craig, did you do anything interesting over the Labor Day weekend? Uh, yeah, no, I, I worked <laughs> the entire Labor Day weekend. Some I, Apparently, I found out after it was all over that Labor Day is actually, you're supposed to stop and take a break and not work, but I decided to, to work the entire weekend and, and through to Monday like it was a normal day and, you know... Put a put in a fifteen hour shift on Monday and uh, but raise some money because of it. So I guess that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I watched almost all of the Labor Day marathon uh, for Give Kids the World, and you did an incredible job just pulling it all together with the recorded segments, the live segments. I mean, there were very few glitches at all with the transitions and sound and all of that i mean you really did a great job yeah it was uh you know it was tough because i at least was trying to still maintain social distancing uh for (laughs) from everyone else so it was I, i i wasn't completely comfortable and ready to go back into our studio for it and you know, it's we all know through all this, it's the mask isn't as much about protecting yourself by wearing it. It's protecting other people around you. So I'm like, well, everyone else around me isn't wearing a mask. So if they have anything, chances are I'm getting it. So I'm I'm just going to have to get that through my head first and and foremost. And then beyond that, the one thing I can do is actually keep keep a distance between me and everyone else. And so that's what I was kind of going with. And because of that, I unfortunately couldn't have any help in the back with any of the, the production aspects. So uh, there was, there was a lot of issues throughout it. Uh, it's, I'm glad it wasn't very noticeable because there was, there was plenty. There was a couple miscues, uh, because I didn't have the proper schedule in front of me. So there was some awkward fade to blacks that then, ended up coming right back to us and little things like that. But overall, people seem to really enjoy the content. People enjoyed our our episode of Connecting with Walt that if you didn't watch it during then, you're going to get to to hear some of it now. Uh, or you can still watch it and listen to this too and see see where the differences were. But yeah, we uh, it, it was a great event and the Diz finally broke their goal of a million dollars with Give Kids the World. Yes. and. Now and they the did it pretty early in the day. Yeah. That's what was remarkable. Yeah, it was uh it was it was very impressive. So we were at 
like 84,000 ish when I got to, to Pete's house in the morning to start. And he and I were just like batting around saying like, okay, well, the goal is a hundred thousand for this one. We hope we hit it. We don't think we will, but if we do, that'll be a pleasant surprise. And then that's when he just mentioned, he's like, well, Steven just said that, you know, it's, we only need another 27 to go in or 30 or I can't even remember the number now. And that would actually put us at, at the million mark and so we just we both laughed at it because we're like well there's there's no way but if we can make a big enough dent on this one then that'll mean the uh, the efforts we put in for the rest of the year to try to get a million before 2020 ends then you know it'll be it'll be easier to achieve it in other ways and yeah it was what around like three o'clock there it ended up happening and and it did not stop and so the the final total that we we raised during that week of the auction and donations and the raffle uh that all raised one hundred eighty two thousand dollars and change and that's amazing especially when you consider what people are going through right now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know with the job situation because of the pandemic and all of that and you know the diz family i mean everybody whether you donate it or not, should be so proud of this because, you know, like Pete said several times, you know, you all help out even if you can't swing it financially. Maybe you book through Dreams Unlimited Travel, which helps finance things like the marathon and all the events that have gone on for 10 years mm-hmm. that, that the Diz has done. Or by listening so that you increase our and watching the videos as you – because then you help increase our listenership and our viewership, which means, you, you know, I mean, that's helpful, too. And you contribute to the boards. I mean, I mean, all of you are just so important to this. And I hope everybody in the Diz family um, feels proud of this. Yeah. This is amazing. It's, you know, it, I'll stand by it and say it a million times. It's not... It's not about what we do. You know, it's we do a good job at spreading the message and trying to put together and corral it all into something. But it's really on everyone who takes the time, shares it with friends, donates items, bids, you know, goes and helps with it. And it's it's all on you guys. What we do is is just, you know, it's a it's a margin of that so uh it really it's it's just we cannot say thank you enough for no. it and and what's more importantly the children the critically ill children and their families that you've all helped that this is going to help that the million that every the funds raised for the last 10 years have helped they all thank you too as my mother used to say all these good deeds that we've just described that you've all done it, it's adding to your the jewel on your crown in heaven mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. anyway that's an old catholic saying for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's uh you know it's it's not stopping too we said it multiple times this is we we crossed the million mark so now of course the goal is is 2 million and hopefully we can do that in less time but uh, it's just it's really amazing we had a we had a great time doing it and it exceeded every expectation i i will not lie i was one of the people in the negative camp when pete told us that we are doing this i i know i was texting other people saying like 
this is what Pete's saying. He's saying he wants to do an auction for Give Kids the World right now in a marathon show in the middle of COVID, in the middle of this pandemic, when people are still out of work, when people are still recovering from the time that they were out of work and really, really not doing well. And I was, I had zero faith that it, anything with this would work at all. And I'm happy. I'm happy that I was extremely wrong. So mm -hmm. I, I could not have been more wrong about it. And there's plenty of us on our team who, who were very wrong. So uh, it's, it's, it's nice to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm happy because the main item I would really wanted, I won my bid on, I did, I set the maximum bid and nobody um, went to it. So I got it. So I'm very pleased. Uh, the second item I wanted, unfortunately, due to issues with hand bid, somebody at seven minutes before the uh, the auction ended, somebody somebody outbid me on the maximum bid. So I went in and thought, okay, at the last minute, I'm going to bid two more dollars and get it. And hand bid went down. And so I couldn't increase my... Um, you know, my bid. Yeah. Oh, well. But it wasn't the main one I wanted. If it had been my primary one, I that one I really wanted. Because it was basically, uh, I was telling Craig before the show, it was the Prince and Cinderella candlesticks, the porcelain candlesticks. And Carol and I years ago bought a fine china Cinderella tea set that sits out on our dining room table and i thought oh these would complement this so well so i really wanted those and so i'm very happy that i i um won out on the on that set it's a, congratulations on your win <laughs> yeah thank you now as i said now i just hope they fit standard candles and not yeah. some disney candle that they no longer make you know yeah and, I I unfortunately did not get to bid on anything because I I knew unless it was something I really loved that I could set like a huge max bid on and and ignore it for ignore 10 hours. It. <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to to oh, do so anything. You, you aren't the one bidding on that um Monopoly game, DVC Monopoly game. <laughs> you know what? I have one Monopoly board at my house. It is the Star Wars 40th anniversary one. I love it. I do not need any uh, any other Monopoly games in my have, house. I think we have the Disney Disney version of it. So uh, Monopoly. Yeah, you're right. When you have one, you're doing fine. Oh, I think we have the children's version. When our children were really little, mm. we bought the junior edition to sort of ease them into Monopoly. And so that was we. St I still have all those games. Oh, that's fun. So, yeah. Anyway, but couple of big announcements were made of upcoming events that I'm going to. Um, there is Give Kids the World Night of a Million Lights that runs from November 13th of this year till January 3rd of 2021. And Craig, is there some information you can share with us about that? Uh, it's... I don't even have all of the details. I'll be honest. Um, I was I was busy. Uh, oh, I have some recording. I have the article that Denny wrote. I happen yeah. to have it up, and I know you'll have a link to it in our show notes. Yes. Yeah. So, I well, I uh, unfortunately, when they were making all these announcements, 
most of them were when I heard them for the first time, uh, with the ex- exception of a couple things here and there. So, like, when when Pete wants something to be a secret, he will keep it from every person on the staff. And it was hilarious because our rep, Stephen, from Give Kids the World, who was on to help us talk about all of these announcements, he was sending me emails and like, okay, can can I have a link to your articles about this so we can push them out there and i was like steven we just our team just found out about this when you told it to us we have no idea what's happening so uh yeah i i i know it's gonna be like a mini osborne uh yeah festival of lights it's and, very uh, exciting yeah. yeah give kids the world if you have, if you wanted to ever visit it this is the time to go yeah the villas and buildings along the villages avenue they're going to be covered in over one million lights and this of course is to benefit Give Kids the World. So guests will be able to walk down this avenue surrounded by lights, just as you did with the Osborne lights. Um, there's going to be a 150-foot lighted tunnel that you can you walk through to enter this. So what, what was that? So what was that event at Epcot that Kathy Whirling always bemoans? Oh, um, the, uh, it, it reminds me sort of of that. Yeah, I because know. I've seen videos of that. Yeah, I, I even, I, I experienced that once or twice in person. I just can't think of its yeah. name right now. Yeah. It'll pop in, it'll pop in <laughs> my head at some point. Anyway, but that's not all you get to do. You can go on all the village's wheelchair accessible attractions, play miniature golf, get a scoop of ice cream at their brand new, um, Hen Starlight Scoops, and you can get a cup of hot cocoa. Santa Claus and Village Ambassadors are going to be there. Mayor Clayton and Ms. Mary will also be there to greet people in a physically distanced way. They're going to follow all the, you know, the COVID, um, you know, rules about that. And proceeds are going to help pave the way for the village to be ready to go when the opportunity to reopen it. Um, to wish families is granted and the cool thing is is that the dreams unlimited travel is sponsoring uh one of the i guess one of the villas that they're going to be decorating and so is our show moving to orlando will also be decorating villas and there guests will have a chance to vote for their favorite so so this is exciting and believe tickets go on sale uh, on October 1st. So I'm going to, I'm going to be at Walt Disney World in November and it, this is going to be on my calendar to yeah. go and enjoy. It so, uh, uh Kylie and I are very excited to get over to Give Kids the World and see see the lights when when that opens up and at Epcot we were looking for Lights of Winter. That's it, Lights of Winter. Yeah. So maybe that'll help Kathy, the the tunnel will help Kathy, um, you know, get over lights of winter a bit. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's even better for her because not only is it going to have that same lights of winter vibe plus Osborne, that entire uh, feeling, but then on top of that, it's at Give Kids the World and it benefits them. So that's that's uh, you know that's hidden checking off all the marks. So. Then the next one, when this was first announced a week or so ago, I immediately 
booked at Bay Lake Towers, a villa. And because I thought, okay, I'm going to this. And then I was delighted to find out it's at the Contemporary Resort. And this is the Diz Family Reunion 2021, which leads me to believe, hey, maybe there'll be a one in 2022, 2023. Anyway, this is from March 25th through the 26th. And this is, it's sort of like a mini Destination D that Give Kids the World. This is a benefit for Give Kids the World. And there's a lot going on at this. Uh, Craig, do you want me to run through this? Yeah, if you don't mind. Sure. So anyway, it's it's like a mini Destination D where there's going to be a main stage and then some breakout stages. And the presenters, uh, there's going to be all kinds of people there. There's going to be the president of Walt Disney World, Jeff Vale. Is that how you say his name? Jeff Vale? Valley. Valley. Oh, how interesting. Interesting spelling of it. Uh, you're going to have the voice of Jasmine, Linda Larkin, uh, the voice of Pocahontas, Irene Bedard. Uh, there's going to, if you, if you're a fan of the Kingdom Keepers series of books, Ridley Pearson's going to be there. Lee Cockrell, former executive vice president of Walt Disney World, will be there, and he writes uh, a lot of the, he writes a lot of books about how you bring the Disney magic like into your workplace and stuff. John August, the screenwriter of Aladdin, Corpse Bride, and Frankenweenie. And this one I'm not familiar with. Serena Valentino, the author of Villains. If you grew up with Bear and the Big Blue House, they are having a reunion of all those folks. If you grew up with the all-new Mickey Mouse Club, I guess that's the 70s group. Because uh, I, I recognize some of these names, they're having a reunion panel of those, of those folks. Or is this the '90s group? I think it's the '90s one because they've oh, done 90s. a couple okay. other events with Give Kids the World in the okay. past couple of years. But we're gonna. But guys, it doesn't have um, Britney Spears or Justin Timberlake or those big yeah, names. Ryan Gosling, JC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it has the it has a lot of the others though. Um, I am, because of what we do, they have stories from Disneyland's openings, people that worked at Disneyland from 1955 on. Tom Nabby, Bill Hoeschler, and Bill Sullivan. I can hardly wait for this. And then there's, there's the attractions actors panel, Peter Renaday, who's voiced like practically everything. D- uh, David Danapur, what has... I forget what did he do. Was I'm he in? Not sure, I know, I know it. And then Mark Silverman, he's most famous for, of course, his um, Im- imitating uh, Rod oh. Serling's voice in Tower of Terror. Yeah, David Danapor is the um, is the one from Flight of Passage. The that's um, it, um, guy. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Okay, so that is cool. And then there's going to be um, an after-hours event. And this is pretty cool. And I, I would imagine tickets are limited for this. There is going to be an after-hours event in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And you have to purchase the tickets for the first two days, uh, you know, for the all the panels and all that. And then you're eligible to purchase a ticket for the After Hours event in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And that's, oh, it's March 25th and 26th, I guess, for the panels. And then March 27th from 9.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. is the 
Galaxy's Edge um, after party. Yeah. And so you get the two big attractions. Maybe I'll finally get to ride Star Wars Rise of the Resistance. I don't know. <laughs> so although hopefully I, I'm hoping I'll get to ride it in November. But of course, you get to ride Smuggler's Run, Rise of the Resistance, Savi's Workshop. So, but you can't build a droid. I'm sort of disappointed by that. Anyway, you can only do, they can only have so much open, I guess. Um, Olga's Cantina. So, and the milk stand. And there's also going to be, uh, the, the Diz is going to be having uh, sort of dessert buffets, I guess, or and all that dessert parties at various locations around Galaxy's Edge. And I'm sure there's going to be a few other little things going on, too. Yeah, uh, I think that's all happening. And then that the day of the Galaxy's Edge party, that is the day that we are doing our podcast recording at some point in the morning. I'm not I don't think there's been any time set or anything for that yet. But there's there is going to be one of those as well, too, for anyone who's interested. And uh, yeah, it's a it it sounds like a very interesting weekend. So uh, the one thing I want to make sure that it's just getting it out there because it's it's still uh, it's I, I don't think it was said enough, but this is. This is a uh, Give Kids the World presentation that we are working with them on. Mm -hmm. So uh, we might not be, you know, there might be uh, some people around for some stuff and other members of the team not around for other things just because uh, this is not our event we are doing it it is we are doing it as a partnership with give kids the world and uh they are they are the ones leading the charge on it and you know they they were even nice enough to to let us brand it as dis family reunion and and when we wanted give kids the world's name to be involved in it and they're like no it's it's you know we're hoping that in march that everything is completely turned around and everyone's going to feel safe traveling and and it's just going to be a different world at that time and hopefully it can be like a big family reunion where old friends and new friends all get together so uh but yeah just just wanted to make sure that that was known too that you know hopefully hopefully a lot of people on our team and stuff will be around for for most of the stuff but uh, it's not necessarily guaranteed because of the style of this event. It's not like the past mm -hmm. ones that we have taken care of every single detail of it. And so we are, we are the ones working it and always around because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, by the time you listen to this show, tickets would have been on sale for several days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so Craig will have a link in our show notes that will have the ticket information and also, uh, information about booking, um, hotels and other things like that too. And I, we're honestly hoping that, uh, well, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it in this way. By the time this is released, it very well could sell out if it's yeah. what if it's what uh, the the powers in charge have a feeling. There's a chance it will already be sold out, but I will still link to that information if you're going, so that way you have a nice place where where you know you can look over everything over and mm -hmm. over. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so hope to see you there because I am planning on going. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, you know, and it's that time again for our Q&A show. 
you know, where you submit questions to us for Craig and I to consider answering. So this time the deadline for questions is going to be October 2nd, and then the show will be released on October 12th. So Craig, do you want to go through all the caveats and the, the fine print and all of that for submitting questions? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we will start a thread on facebook.com slash disunplugged, our official disunplugged uh, page on Facebook. And I'll make sure to, to pin it at the top, but you'll see connecting with Walt logo. So that'll be your uh, look for that. And that'll be your your clue to this is where we're going to ask questions. And of course, I'm going to put on there that this is where we're going to ask questions. So questions, uh, we will take them as of the time that it's posted, which will go up on the 11th with this show. And we will be leaving it open until October 2nd. So you will have three full weeks to to ask all of your questions. And of course, we'll take questions on Walt Disney, Disney history in general, the theme parks, uh, Imagineering, Imagineers, movies, books, music. Uh, we, we'll take all of those questions. Uh, the only things we ask, please don't just ask simple yes or no questions because uh, chances are we won't pick them. If that happens, because we we like to have discussions about the questions that are asked, and we can't really do that when it's a a simple yes or no. And then uh, we also always avoid the questions of what would Walt Disney think of this or that, because we have no idea the people around him that are still around will admit the same thing that they they genuinely they can make guesses but at the same time they don't even know what Walt would think about this and that uh, so we just we don't answer those questions everything mm-hmm. else go for it go crazy we always know there's going to be a couple joke questions in there as well too and that brings a smile on our face sometimes uh <laughs> not every time uh but you know what yeah just go crazy with that and uh we'll we'll compile them all up and then i think we're looking at somewhere around the the 13th of october uh or sorry that's when we'd be recording it we'll probably release around the 16th or the 23rd of october uh for for those shows so uh, get your questions in by october 2nd again facebook.com slash dis unplugged sounds good okay thank you well earlier we spoke about the labor day marathon benefiting give kids the world and that we contributed a Connecting with Walt segment interviewing Dave Bossert about his new book, 3D Disneyland. And that uh, video segment had to be edited to fit into the allotted time frame for the marathon. But in this episode, we are sharing the unedited version of our interview. So even though you may have seen the video version during the marathon and its subsequent release, uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, we are. We hope you enjoy this longer version of the interview with Dave. We are very excited to be a part of the Dis Unplugged Labor Day Marathon Auction, benefiting Give Kids the World. And in honor of Disneyland's 65th anniversary this year, which is Walt's Park that started it all, We have invited Disney historian and artist Dave Bossert to talk about some of Disneyland's attractions from the past, many of which are featured in his new book, 3D Disneyland, that we will be talking about. 
After working at the Walt Disney Studio for 32 years on many of your favorite films, Dave has written several books, including Remembering Roy E. Disney, Memories and Photos of a Storied Life, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Cartoons. Actually, he has two versions of that because they found another cartoon. He updated the book. Dolly and Destino, Kem Weber, Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios, and 3D Disneyland like you've never seen it before. Dave, thank you for being a part of our Labor Day Marathon to benefit Give Kids the World. Hi, Michael. Hi, Craig. It is absolutely a pleasure to be here with you guys. I always enjoy coming on your show and talking about whatever we're going to talk about. (laughs) Thank you. We enjoy having you on the show, too, because your, your knowledge of Disney history is outstanding. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, to celebrate Disneyland's 65th anniversary, let's take a walk through the Disneyland of the past and talk about some of the former attractions highlighted in your book. And then we're going to talk about your very unique book, 3D Disneyland. Now, I'm probably the only one on the Diz team who will remember and have experienced most of these attractions. So let's start out on Main Street USA. And, you know, most of us are familiar with the fire engine in the firehouse with Walt's apartment above. What many may not know is that this was the original fire engine that transported guests up and down Main Street, drawn by horses. And I think it, what, cost a dime? Yeah, and it it was drawn by two horses. Uh Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what's cool is your photo in the book shows it in front of the old Beacon Storage Building, yes. which which housed the guest lockers next to the Emporium. And now that building is part of the Emporium. So. Yeah, and, you know, I was blown away when I saw that photograph for the first time because, you know, as I mentioned, I, I – never went to the park uh, or I didn't visit the park until 1980, 81. I grew up on the East coast. So I actually went to Walt Disney world first. Um, I was down at Walt Disney world in 1976. Uh, and so it wasn't until 1980, 81 that I actually got to Disneyland in Anaheim. And by then long, long gone where was the horse drawn fire engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, it was, uh, I think it only ran, uh, my understanding is it only ran for like a year or two. Yeah, uh, I think in your book it says 1960. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it ran so, for a few yeah. years. It was only a few years and, and and then they retired it and it's just, a dis- it's on display uh, in the firehouse. Yeah. yeah, I wrote it because when I was a little boy, probably like most boys my age, and girls too, uh, I was in the fire men and fire engines and we had a fire station a block from my parents business and i had an old texaco fire hat where you could talk into the microphone and i would go visit them all the time so i rode that fire engine because it was a fire engine so it was a great way to go up and down main street i'm imagining though having two horses pulling that fire engine that there there must have been something uh, you know, as far as uh, just keeping those two horses under control or something, I don't know. It's it's a lot easier just having the one horse pulling the uh, the trolley car. Yeah, it probably shows the weight of that fire engine too. If they needed two horses, sure. Yeah. So, 
Well, from the central plaza or hub, let's turn right as Walt intended his story to be told and head into Adventureland, which was based on Walt Disney's True Life Adventure film series. The key and only attraction was the Jungle Cruise. And folks may not know that the current queue and boathouse loading area is a rather close recreation of the original loading area. Again, that you have photos of. And you have several photos of the original style of the Jungle Cruise boats, which were colorful and a bit cartoonish compared to today's boats, which are styled more closely to the film The African Queen. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. But and and also the other amazing thing about a lot of those photos is that the foliage and the trees, the jungle is not as lush and grown in. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we're used to it today. Yeah, because it was all new back then. Yeah. The other interesting thing about that area is, you know, Ron Dominguez, who was, you know, he started out as a ticket taker and went all the way to be vice president of attractions. Um, his family owned 10 acres there. We talked about this a while back. And he, that's, he believes that when he figured it all out, once Disneyland was built, he said across from the dock where there are a couple of palm trees, uh-huh. that's where his family house was. And those are those were the original palm trees that they left in place. Right, yeah. exactly. And then there's the big Dominguez palm that's right next to the boathouse. As you're looking at it, it's to the right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think there's a story that his mother or somebody asked that that palm tree be preserved. I think you're right. I, I read about that in um, uh, Three Years in Wonderland mm-hmm. uh, uh, by Todd James Pierce, uh, uh, which, is, which is an excellent book on the, uh, the planning and building of Disneyland, those, those mm-hmm. first couple of years. Yeah, I'm reading that book right now. Yeah, are you enjoying mm-hmm. it? Very I, much so. I yeah, like but- Todd James Pierce's style of writing. Yeah, and it was it was an enjoyable read. Mm-hmm. Now, um, of course, we can't leave Adventureland with talking about the beloved Tahitian Terrace. You know, you 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 know you it was themed around the islands of Tahiti, Samoa, Hawaii. Yes. You know, you you sat beneath that Disney dendron, the the colorful faux tree with all the flowers and all of that you know there's the story that when the imagineers built it and then walt sat up at the top uh um, level at the tables you couldn't see the stage because of the tree and the imagineer said well well it's sort of built and he said well can't you just cut the tree and put something in the middle and they said yeah yeah we could do that that's exactly what they did (laughs) <laughs> i never experienced that one it was wonderful the 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 dishes were inspired by the south pacific but people went there for the planters punch the tahitian planters punch it was delicious I, I went there many many times i was fortunate enough to be able to take our children there My wife and i took our children there before it closed down completely but, no alcohol, no alcohol in that punch no none at all so I don't even think they I don't know if they had a had a an adult version of it. But you know, they've tried to recreate it over the years. Especially if it's not the same. Right, right. Yeah. You don't have the ambiance. 
Yeah, no, not at all. No, you need that waterfall parting and the (laughs) fire coming up and all that. So anyway, oh, well, but passing through to Pirates of the Caribbean, you have the original entrance photos of what it would. I, I believe today's entrance with the bridge overpowers the delicate in, intricacy, you know, the just the the beautiful, you know, ironwork and all that of the show building facade of what would have been Walton Roy's apartment if Walt had lived. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's interesting because. Um, uh, before that apartment was completed, uh, that was uh, one of the last places that Claude Coates spoke with Walt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walt was sitting up there, and and th- this is you're talking uh, fall of 1966, and he just couldn't go through the uh, the attraction, uh, and he asked Claude to be his eyes and ears and uh and report back and you know it it just shows you how much trust that walt had put into claude Coates. yeah was that when was go ahead i i was just going to say who who really was the principal show designer for for pirates of the caribbean was that when was it to claude Coates that walt said don't let them make you open it before it's done uh, he may have said that. I, I haven't seen that quote verbatim. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, I have to say, uh, really, Pirates of the Caribbean, to me, was the pinnacle of, uh, of, of the art form of immersive um, uh, theme park attractions. It really, you know, I, I interviewed Marty Scalar just shortly before he passed away. It was probably one of his last interviews. And Marty said that was that that attraction set the bar uh, that uh, set the bar for all the Imagineers, mm-hmm. because when you go through the Anaheim Pirates of the Caribbean, it is it is such a wonderful ride because it's. It's long. You're spending like 15 minutes going through that attraction, you know, and uh, and I was I was so amazed when I first went on the Anaheim version because I had only experienced the Orlando Magic Kingdom version, which is shorter. Oh, yes. (laughs) And I was just. I was absolutely stunned, uh, you know, and, you know, when you come out of the grotto into that main building, you know, the, the, uh, the wicked wench firing its cannons at the best, Spanish town. Best I mean, reveal ever. It really is. It really is. And, and, and that speaks volumes to, to Claude, uh, because, you know, you're going through this claustrophobic, you know, caverns. You know, and all of a sudden you just emerge into that uh, that battle scene and it's just spectacular. Have you had an opportunity to see Pirates of the Caribbean in any of the international parks? Uh, let's see. I went through Pirates. I've uh, been through uh, Orlando. Uh, I, I've been through Pirates in Tokyo and paris 
but I haven't gone through, uh, I didn't go through Shanghai. When I was at Shanghai, uh, it, you know, the park hadn't opened yet and they weren't done with that and all of it, you know. Yeah. I like the, the Disneyland Paris one. It's a yeah. very different take on it. The, sure. The story is different. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, that that's something that I really do like that Disney does uh, at the different parks. They have variations, you know, there's variations on the Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's variations on some of the other attractions. Uh, some good, some, eh, okay, you know. But uh, I have to say, I just adore the original Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. I just absolutely love it. Yeah, and then back in the day, they had some great shops in New Orleans. They had the Pirates Arcade Museum. They had pirate-themed, one-of-a-kind Disney games, and these beautifully themed wooden cabinets. They were great. And then there was Lillian Disney's one-of-a-kind shop, mm-hmm. where there were all kinds of antiques. And and it lost money, but Walt wanted it there because it set the ambiance of New Orleans Square. Sure. I, I think at one time they even had a Gutenberg Bible in there. Huh. I, think I, I think I read. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I was going to say it, it's interesting because uh, I, I have to say I just love the way they designed everything in New Orleans Square. You know, like the, the Blue Bayou restaurant where you're actually sitting there overlooking the bayou at the beginning of Pirates. And, you know, all of those kinds of touches I, I just think are so brilliant. I agree. I agree. And Walt wouldn't open the restaurant until the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction was running. Mm-hmm. He just opened it, I think, for opening day. And yeah. then and because that was part of the experience. Yeah. You know, was for people to see the the boats go by. You know, and you, you mentioned uh, that there was a little pirate museum. Well, you know, originally the entire Pirates of the Caribbean attraction was going to just be the the section that's the grotto, the mm-hmm. underground section. That that was, and it was originally planned as a walkthrough attraction. And then after the sixty four sixty five World's Fair, Walt wanted it to be a boat ride because of uh, it's a small world. And then uh, you got. Um, uh, uh, so many ideas from from Walt and the other Imagineers and all the sketches that Mark was doing up about the gags, Mark Davis. And and at one point, you know, Claude used to come into Imagineering early in the morning. He'd usually be in by seven in the morning to his office. And one day he walked into the model shop and Walt was standing there looking over the pirate model. And he looked at Claude and he says, you know, he goes, I think we've got to go under the railroad and and build a, a, a you know, much larger attraction. And that's what wound up happening. So you wind up going under the under you go through the berm under the railroad mm-hmm. and you come into that whole building with the wicked wench and the 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 Spanish town being pillaged and plundered and all of that. Yeah. So there's a, some really wonderful stories when you start to drill into how that whole thing was developed uh, and how many years it took to finally get to where where it got to. 
Oh, I remember going up to the top of the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse and looking down in the construction site because I, I was just so excited. And you're right, there, for years there was no activity. Yeah. But and, and that's why the, we have the drops is to yeah. go under the berm. Yeah. Well, exactly. And also, you know, it, uh, there, it was like a lot of stuff was at a standstill because of the 64-65 World, uh, World's Fair. You know, they they had the facade of uh, the Haunted Mansion uh, mm-hmm. built, but there was nothing, nothing inside of it, you know, and it wouldn't be for many years. Uh, even, even though they had put out a flyer at the main gate saying that the Haunted Mansion was coming 1963 or whatever it was, and, uh, and, and it never did. It just they, they, they finished the facade and that was all. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. I would go every year with this magazine that came out for the 25th anniversary of the park. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the 10th anniversary of the park. And I would ask cast members every year. Is this open yet? Is this open yet? I'd always say, I'd always tell me now. Did you ever hear rumors as to why it wasn't open? Because apparently there were rumors circulating that, you know, someone died or somebody died in there. And, you know, there was all kinds of like, you know, urban legends starting to happen there. there. The one one that it was so frightening, someone died. That was the big rumor at the time. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's something. yeah. Well, let's hike into Frontierland. And you have photos of one of the attractions I miss the most, the Mike Finn keelboats. And, mm-hmm. and of course, this was based on, you know, Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. And even yeah. though Davy may have won the race, Mike Fink got his name on the attraction. I think that the, I, I don't know, the skippers of the Gully Wumper and the Bertha May and, and and these were right out of the film. They were the same boats that were in the David Crockett series. They had a better spiel than even the Jungle Cruise skippers. And and you got such a great vantage point. If you got to sit on top of the Gully Wumper Bertha May, you had a great view of Rivers of America and the skippers on the on the keel boats would have these pretend arguments with the the rowers on the Davy Crockett River canoes, although they were called the Indian War canoes at the time. I loved, I never missed going on this. I had no yeah, idea I, they weren't seaworthy, I, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I never, uh, I never experienced those. Uh, and, and they looked wonderful from the standpoint of being able to sit on top. But I think that, I think there was a, a stability issue. There was. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and by the way, there was with uh, the Mark Twain riverboat when when the park first opened, the the cast member that was supposed to keep track of how many guests went on to that boat, um, you know, just was you know preoccupied with ogling at like the crowds at Disneyland, and wound up letting almost five hundred people board the Mark Twain. And as it went around the rivers of America, it actually jumped its uh, guardrail mm-hmm. uh, and was listing to one side. And they actually had to take passengers off into the water, which, by the way, is only about four feet deep. And they had to wade up to the shore until enough people oh, were goodness. off the boat that they were able to get it back onto its uh, guardrail uh, and continue along. But after that, they had to limit, I think it's like 
275 or 300 guests only mm-hmm. On, mm-hmm. onto that uh, uh, paddle wheeler. But that that was just an interesting story from the first week of, of the park. You know, there was all kinds of mishaps that were going on uh, uh, all around. Yeah, yeah, that was um, yeah, it was taking on water. Can you imagine if that happened today? Oh, the, my God. the uproar and the lawsuits and all yeah. that. And in those days, people just took it in stride. <laughs> yeah, they really did. They really did. You know? Yeah. But uh, you know, I I. I, I do love the fact that they have those boats, you know, and, and the Columbia too, you know, we can't remember, we can't forget about the tall ship, the Columbia. Uh, and, and I put a little, I don't know if you saw uh, the little uh, uh, caption I put in about that uh, with the silver dollar ceremony. Yeah. Uh, when they stepped the mast for that ship, Walt personally put a silver dollar under each mast. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, and was, you know they're missing now. They're they're not there anymore. The what with the silver dollars? Yeah, they're when not. they refurbished the ship a few times, apparently they um disappeared. Somebody, somebody <laughs> walked off with them. That's too bad. You know, it is. it's kind of, kind of a neat little story. Uh, you know, and and it was Joe Fowler who was the former Navy admiral who who told Walt all about it and they just incorporated it you know into the uh the ceremonies that they were doing for some of this stuff yeah and, yeah and you know originally frontierland seemed to go on forever and as a boy i was really into westerns they were on television they were in the films and i played cowboy when i wasn't playing fireman and i was so excited that i could ride a real conestoga wagon and stagecoach at Disneyland. Yeah. And and you have photos of them in your book. I, but, I we have we have a photo of the the Conestoga wagon. Yeah. 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 And uh, one uh, one of them said um, Western Westward Ho, which was a Disney film uh-huh. on its canvas cover, and the other one was Oregon or Bust. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great because you you went in the back where like the pack mules were, which was another favorite of mine, and the Mine train went through before nature's wonderland. Yep, exactly. Which again is another, another attraction. I loved the humor of Mark Davis was so prevalent in throughout that attraction. Yeah, it was brilliant. But, um, and you have photos of the, uh, you know, of the, of the, um, town of rainbow ridge in there and some of the trains and it was basically the jungle cruise where where the jungle cruise went through you know the the various rivers of the world this just this went through the the north american wilderness it was on land and you saw the animals yeah i i you know i have to say uh i i I really don't remember any of the like they used to have an Indian village with real uh-huh. Indians. That's and, right. And all that. Yeah, uh, I didn't. We we didn't have any pictures of that, uh, but uh, I was just fascinated uh, by some of that stuff and and why it went away. The Indian village was so cool because they they had real Native Americans there. They had different tribes would come in at different times. I guess they signed up and they rotated and they did their traditional dances there was a circle 
there with benches and all that. And they did their traditional dances. And they knew invite, you know, the young folk to come in and try it out. But then they had set up places where they demonstrated their crafts of their tribe. So it was entertaining and educational. And you could purchase their crafts. And it was authentic. That's it the other was. thing, too. You know, having not seen it, but just read about it, it just felt very authentic, and uh, and and it kept, uh, you know, it exposed people to those cultures, and uh, and and kept that that uh, cu- those cultures alive in in people's minds, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, Bear Country that became Critter Country replaced all of that. Yeah. And then Big Thunder Mountain replaced. Mind Trains the Nature's Wonderland and the Pack Mules and Conestoga Wagon and, and all that. And, and, you know, and, and part of that had to do with the pressure the park was feeling uh, uh, because there was competitors popping up with thrill roller coasters mm-hmm. and those types of things. And so that's one of the reasons why Big Thunder Mountain went in uh, was to sort of satis- satisfy that. People wanted more thrill rides. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, I interviewed Tony Baxter for the Claude Coates book, and uh, which is going to come out next year. Uh, but uh, I asked him if he had ever talked to Claude about replacing uh, Nature's Wonderland and the Mine Train. And, uh, and he said he did. And he said Claude surprisingly was okay with it. Because it was, again, goes back to Walt's philosophy that the park would never be done. It was always changing and it would always be updated and there would always be new things coming in and old things leaving, you know. And uh, and so he he wasn't, you know, depressed about it or 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 anything like that. He he actually you know, thought it was time and it was, it was, you know, it had played its, uh, it's ran its course and it was time to put in something new. Uh, and I think that, I think that's great. I, I, you know, I, I've had some people say, well, you know, I hope they don't do that to pirates. And I, and I don't think they'll ever do that to pirates or the haunted mansion. There's, there's certain seminal attractions at the parks that, that actually define the park in some way. You know, and I, I just don't see those kinds of attractions ever being replaced because they're so popular and they're such fan favorites that there's always crowds to go into those. Yeah, I agree. Although, did you hear, you know, there was the rumor on the interwebs a few years ago that It's a Small World was in danger. Thought, they can't take that down. That's another one of those. Yeah, you know, something I, I just don't see that going away because, yeah. again, they have the volume of guests going through it. You know, again, that's the, that's just such a seminal seminal attraction. They and they went in and updated it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, that's not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I think people would chain themselves <laughs> to that that little happiest cruise on earth. So yeah. now now let's walk over to the realm most closely associated with Walt Disney, and that's Fantasyland, which you know tells the stories of his characters that grew his studio in the park. And you know Walt always envisioned a castle at the heart of Disneyland. 
it, but its heightened design varied in his mind. And when he was working with Herb Ryman on the first illustration of the park one weekend, Walt described the castle as being 500 feet tall. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. And again, you have some just beautiful photos of the, the castle. And um, but the original Fantasyland was very different from the current version, and, and it's the Fantasyland I grew up with. So it's the Fantasyland yeah. of my childhood, and you have many photos of it in your book, Three D Disneyland. And I think I love the current Fantasyland, but there was a magic to that original Fantasyland. And how would you describe the differences between the original Fantasyland and the current one? Well, you know, to me, uh, it, it was the way it was laid out originally. I think it was in a tighter space, you know. And so when they did that major uh, renovation of Fantasyland, when when the uh, Chicken of the Sea, the old Chicken of the Sea Pirate Galleon, uh, which became uh, uh, Hook's Galley, I think, mm-hmm, uh, right. Skull Rock and the Lagoon, when all that went away, and then they moved the King Arthur's Carousel and they moved the Dumbo Ride. It really was to open it up, you know, and to give a little bit more breathing room, if you will, uh, walkways and whatnot. But the original facades for like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and Peter Pan, it was it was that sort of Renaissance fair uh, facades uh and and that all changed uh you know again uh theming it a little bit more towards each of the attractions you know and there, there's there's a similarity to them but it, it's just different you know mm-hmm. it's 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 a, it's a different thing and the dumbo ride there's a great shot in the book of the dumbo ride with the ticket booth yes you know? i saw and, that and some, so many people, I think there's so there's so many people have never experienced that, myself included. You know, I I I don't remember uh, the ticket books uh, for Disneyland. I remember them for Disney World, uh, but I don't remember them for Disneyland because uh, they were gone by the time I visited the park. Uh, and uh, and so it's fascinating to see those ticket booths. And I know I know there's the there there is the one ticket booth that's still there in Fantasyland. I think there's two. Is there two? There's the Alice in Wonderland, oh, the yeah, Big I'm Mushroom. Sorry. Yes. And then and then for Storybook Land, the Correct. lighthouse themed one. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there. I was thinking the one by the Storybook Land, but there is the yeah, the mushroom over by Alice, which which was kind of an interesting, uh, uh, you know, again theming the ticket booth to the attraction. It was I thought it was wonderful. Oh, absolutely. And you're right. We lost a lot. The beloved Skyway. The, yes. Oh my gosh. And. You have some great photos, including the Skyway going through the Matterhorn. And the Matterhorn interior wasn't themed originally. Right. You ju- you saw the Bare Bones roller coaster when you went through that. Yeah. Yeah. And and then they then they created a sort of a rocky kind of facade in there. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yes. I have that I have that one photo inside the Matterhorn looking out at Fantasyland. And and I you know, when I first saw that I, I, I was waffling on whether I wanted to put it in, but I had a photo approaching it and I thought, Oh, we gotta put this one in because we're inside of it and you know, 
people you know who who didn't experience the the skyway can at least get a sense of the fact that it actually went right through the matterhorn yeah and skull rock cove or pirate cove was so cool i mean because i as a little boy i love peter pan the film i still do and i had read the book and that it, it just gave such a ominous feel to that area of the park and then at night whoever designed the lighting for that it was outstanding mm. it, again it made it creepy sometimes i think in special occasions they would even have fog machines or something where the uh. fog would rise up and and all that it was really cool well and and still- you know, i i was gonna say right before it became you know before it was hook's galley it was chicken it was sponsored by chicken of the sea tuna that. and that's what they served there they served tuna fish sandwiches which, which is a, i heard so much about but never experienced you know ted uh, yeah. photographer took most of these photos in the book ted was there and he used to tell me about the tuna sandwiches Oh, yeah. You know, I I guess growing up Catholic, you know, it was when every Friday you, you couldn't eat meat. So it was tuna casserole. And so I grew up hating tuna, uh. you know, like chicken of the sea. I So my family would go to Captain Hook's pirate ship to eat or chicken of the sea pirate ship. I refused. So there was a hot dog stand. It was because Fantasyland used to dead end. Um, right. Where now we have the the Big Thunder Mountain, um, you know, walkway there, yeah. uh, tra- trail. Well, there was a hot dog hamburger stand there. So they would get me a hot dog. <laughs> and they would go, oh, oh, they had the grossest thing, hot tuna pie. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, they, they had a tuna burger and then the famous tuna sandwich that everybody liked. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't do it. But it was fun to go down into the ship to order. And, uh, so, but otherwise, yeah, but I've got, a, I've got, a, and you know, there was, there, there's a funny story because when the park first opened, they only paint, they were only had enough time to paint the one <laughs> side of the pirate ship. The back side of it hadn't been painted yet; it was still being worked on. But, but the park opened anyway. So, yeah, yeah, that's uh, so much of the park was unfinished, but they pulled it off. There's some nice shots in the book of the uh, uh, the galley, uh, you know, Captain Hook's galley with all the rigging on the ship uh, that were it was shot from the Skyway, looking mm-hmm. down at it, and and I, I was really impressed by the, some of those photos because they they really have a 3D quality that's uh, you know so some of the pictures in the book are just really a wow when it comes to the 3D. Other pictures are really good. They look great. And there's one or two where you're going to be hard-pressed to say, well, I can't really see the 3D here, but I put them in anyway because they're they're showing things that people have never seen before. Like, you know, I, I know we, we went by uh, Rivers of America, but over in that corner of the park behind the berm was where the original spur for the railroad was. And it wasn't until many years later that they they built the whole roundhouse and you know maintenance facility on the opposite corner of the mm-hmm. park, you know. Mm-hmm. So to be able to see some of those, and also the fact that there's orange groves as far as you can see in some of those photos is just mind blowing because of the way the park looks today. There yeah. isn't an 
Grove in sight. Yeah, yeah, it's all the motor inns and hotels and fast food restaurants. Yeah. Well, finally, let's step into the future and the realm most problematic for Walt and his Imagineers, Tomorrowland. And the original entrance, because they threw it together at the last minute. Oh, yeah. The whole, that whole land. The original entrance is very simple. Uh, You know, guests first encountered the clock of the world, where you, it had, the base sort of had this map of the world and you, I don't know, you had the, you went to the area and you sort of lined it up and, and then below were the time zones and the time. But um, it, it was good for time zones, but you know, there's some places where the time was offset. So if you lived in Newfoundland, you, you never knew what time it was based on that world clock <laughs> and all that. So, because they were like an hour and a half ahead of Eastern time. Right, yeah, they're, because they're, they they decided not to do a, a, a full hour. They did a half hour. I think it's one of the only places in the world where they're like, there's, there's a half hour difference. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what, what's really interesting, though, is that, that that's such a uh, an iconic-looking image now, you know, that it, it's kind of got a retro quality to it when you look at it. And, and I, I really secretly hope that somebody says, let's rebuild the, you know, let's, let's do a new version of the world clock. Uh, even if they did a smaller version of it or something, you know, I, I, I just, I just thought it was really kind of terrific. And then behind that is the, uh, the TWA Moonliner. Yes. The, the weenie, the weenie that drew yeah. you into the park. And that was an icon for so many years. And I believe that was a little taller than the castle was. It was. It was. Yeah. It was eight feet taller than Sleeping yeah. Beauty's castle. And, 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 you know, what's amazing to me, I've seen a lot of comments from people uh, over the last few weeks saying that, you know, because I have the Moonliner on the cover of the book. Uh, and a lot of people commenting that it looks like Elon Musk's rocket. Yeah. You know, and, well, and of course, originally it was designed by John Hench, one of the original Disney Imagineers, and and who assisted him was the rocket scientist Werner von Braun, That's who we right. just talked about on Connecting with Walt because of his involvement in the Man in Space series, yeah. you know, that you can watch on Disney Plus. Sure. Right now. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, that was the 50s. Von Braun reached out to Walt in in the early or the mid sixties and, and invited him to Huntsville, Alabama, which is known as rocket city and Houston space, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Houston control center and then Cape Canaveral. And so Walt in 1965 took, um, uh, Hench and Claude Coates and, um, a number of other, there's like four or five other, six other uh, Imagineers and his brother, Roy O, Roy O Disney. Uh, and they went on this tour uh, of the of the space facilities because Von Braun wanted to see if he could get Walt to do some more television shows on the space program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just never materialized and then Walt passed away. But I... Yeah. 
But there's some wonderful, I was going to say, there's some wonderful photos going in the Claude Coates book uh, from that trip. It's really, it's really crazy, you know. Well, and in that trip, Walt uh, climbed into a simulator, mm-hmm. and he, I think, he was able to dock. Uh, he docked with, you know, the Gemini. I, it was, I yeah. think it was the Gemini capsule. Yeah. Yeah. And he did, he performed the docking the first time. And there was an actual astronaut there who failed at it. <laughs> and the same thing. It, I mean, so Walt, Walt could have flown to the moon, I guess. Could have been an astronaut. With, with, with no training whatsoever. <laughs> so. He wasn't running this family empire and had this giant theme park. He could have been an astronaut. That's right. That's right. Now, Monsanto sponsored two great attractions in Tomorrowland that people still yeah. talk about today. The Monsanto House of the Future. My mother loved this house. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, you know, it, it provided a glimpse of how we would all be living in the future. And, of course, everything's ultra modern and synthetic. Yes. And, yes. and my, my mother was fascinated by the kitchen and the microwave oven. I, I think, though, she had lived long enough for microwave. She would only thing she would have done is heat up her coffee in it. But that <laughs> fascinated her completely. And I thought it was really interesting. And yeah. All that's left of it are the Alpine Gardens. It's now the, um, oh, where where you meet with Tinkerbell and all that now. I, so, I, have, Hollow. I, have, I have one photo of that mm-hmm. uh, in the book uh, of the House of Tomorrow. But mm-hmm. they also did they also did the Hall of Chemistry. They did. And, they did. And then the Hall of Chemistry became the adventure through inner space. Oh, my gosh. People miss this one so much. This was where where you got miniaturized, miniaturized, and you went through a journey to the world of molecules and atoms, and you got shrunk down. And of course, it all went terribly wrong. And, yes. and you had to you were you had to be brought out quickly to full size. And you know, and and this, the props were so simple. You know, styrofoam snowflakes, and of course, we all remember the giant eye looking down at us through the. From the microscope, microscope towards the end of it. But, yeah. you know, what was interesting about that, because Claude Coates was the show designer for uh, Adventure Through Inner Space. And what's really interesting is that here is a guy who has, you know, he, he did, um, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, and which was so detailed and had so much going on, all these audio animatronics. I think it was like 60-some-odd audio animatronics throughout, uh, all the special effects, everything. It was highly detailed. Uh, and and then he goes on and he does something that is, I mean, you could classify it as minimalist mm-hmm. uh, because it was really a dark ride that had really minimal shapes and relied heavily on Paul Fries's script uh, and your imagination as you went through. And and that was also, I guess, Disneyland's Tunnel of Love. There was yes. a lot of stories oh, of, of dates uh, <laughs> you know, uh, going in on the, on the, uh, the atom mobiles, they called uh-huh. them, you know. Yes, so. many a child apparently has been conceived on that attraction. <laughs> so, from what I've been told, Tony Baxter, I recently heard him tell a, a very funny story about this. He was 
at, at the queue for the, we all called it the mighty microscope which was the giant right. microscope where you saw the people get supposedly shrunken down and so we didn't so that's what we called the attraction and he was standing there and there was a mother who was a lady who was clearly distraught and so he talked to her and asked her about it she said well my son went on the attraction and 25 minutes ago and he said that when he, he when he went through the tube he was going to wave at me and i haven't seen him yes and, he, and i've heard this story yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. i thought you know even as a boy i think i i knew i wasn't getting shrunk <laughs> <laughs> tony told me that story when i was interviewing him uh, about claude Coates and that attraction and that was one of the stories he told it's a wonderful story yeah. And this attraction had uh, a Sherman Brothers song attached to it. Because when you right. got off, you went to the Monsanto's Fountain of Fashion and you heard that jaunty little tune, Miracles from Molecules. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and, and I think the one thing we really haven't touched on is that when Walt first opened Disneyland, there was, a lot of these attractions were, had corporate sponsors. You know, and that that's how they that's how Walt was able to pay for the park, essentially, you know, was, you know, he was bringing in these sponsor dollars to, to help finance everything. And, and I think over the next 10 or 15 years of the park being open, those slowly kind of went away, you know, um, but part of the part of like adventure through inner space you had uh, you know, Monsanto was the corporate sponsor, so naturally, when you got off the attraction, you you were in a giant commercial for Monsanto and all the different products that they made, rayon and all these different synthetic polyester, yeah, all this stuff. Uh, and and I always I always thought that that was fascinating, and and of course that it it eventually just went away, you know, uh, well, as they they took over, you know. Star tours flew in. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But but I I I would have loved to have uh, experienced that kind of an attraction. Uh, and you know somebody I somebody had had created like a, a virtual reality uh, version yeah. of. Uh, it's, it's remarkable that, that I read about, and I thought to myself, with the technology they have today and the gaming engines, uh, I think you could easily recreate like a really great experience as a as a VR experience where people could just go into a a room, you know, and just don mm -hmm. the goggles and a pair of headphones and and actually experience a high def version of that as if you were really on the attraction, yeah. you know. And, and they could bring back Horizons that way and World of Motion yeah. from Epcot Center. That would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think there's you know, and that's one of those things where you know you put on a, a, a headset, you put on the uh, uh, headphones, and you sit in in some kind of like almost like a teacup, you know, kind of uh, you know uh, situation where you. It's programmed to what you're watching. So if your automobile was going to turn 90 degrees, you feel that rotation just sitting in, 
you know, in, in like a little teacup, you know, yep. and, and yep. you're not really going anywhere, but it's giving you that sensation, you know, as part of the uh, part of the VR experience. That's true. Yeah, it was a terrific little attraction. And you've included some wonderful photos in your book, wonderful photos in your book of what I think is the best version of Tomorrowland, 1967's new Tomorrowland, The World on the Move, that Walt was involved with, but never lived to see. Uh, this was amazing, because everywhere you look, something was moving. They, the way they stack the attractions with, uh-huh. you know, the the submarine voyage at the bottom, then you had the the uh, the monorail and then the people mover and then the the um, rocket jets oh yeah. it was amazing and it was and the beautiful Mary Blair murals yeah and I mean there's nothing like that yeah no I I agree and you know there's really such an emphasis on uh, transportation when you go to the parks and it's not just individual transportation it's mass transportation you know it's like I think Walt envisioned that the monorail would go beyond Disneyland and become mm-hmm. you know a a way of zipping people around the Los Angeles basin you know and uh, and you know, it never came to be, which is which is kind of sad, you know, because that's what we need. Yeah. And, you know, it's the, the uh, Tomorrowlands and other lands in, in the other parks. Everything is interior. You don't see anything on the outside except uh, the, except the Magic Kingdom has the people mover. But and I thought, you know, you think this is the future, a bunch of sterile buildings, whereas Walt's vision was moving and animation and people on the go and there was always something to look at to engage your your mind and your imagination and i think that's why the 1967 new tomorrowland was just so spectacular yeah yeah i agree I absolutely agree. I wish I could have experienced it. I could only do that uh, with the pictures. But that's what I love about those pictures that we put in 3D Disneyland is that they are in 3D. So it's not just a picture. You're capturing this, you know, the photo captured a moment in time and space, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can really get a sense of the dimensionality of, uh, of the pictures. Yeah. Well, and your book, 3D Disneyland, brings to life, like you're saying, in a very unique way, Disneyland from the 1950s to the 1980s. Now, my introduction to 3D photography was the Viewmaster discs. I had every Disneyland and Disney film Viewmaster disc package when I was a boy. And then places all around the world. That's how I traveled when I was a boy, was through my Viewmaster discs. So what inspired you to gather these photos and then publish them in a book? Well, you know, this is this is an interesting story because the photographer, as I mentioned earlier, his name is Ted Kiersey. And Ted has a very fascinating uh, background. He, he grew up in Downey, a uh, suburb of Los Angeles, not far from Anaheim. And uh, his father took him to Disneyland the first week it was open in, uh, in July of 1955. And just about a couple of months before that, Ted had bought himself a Kodak Aniston stereo camera. And a stereo camera, and I have a picture of it in the book, has two lenses on it. And the lenses are sort of set apart like the human eyes are. So you're taking a left eye and a right eye view 
uh, or a picture of whatever you're viewing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's how he started uh, his interest in, in stereo photography. And so he still has that camera. He still has the camera. And I, he's had that now for more than 65 years. And it still works. And he still shoots wow. pictures with it. And, uh, and that's why I wanted to put it in the book and just show people what a stereo camera looked like. Mm-hmm. But Ted and I, uh, well, le- so let me s- step forward here really quickly and give you the sort of synopsis of, of Ted. So while he was in high school in Downey, his art teacher encouraged him to submit uh, one of his paintings uh, to a art competition. And the, the grand prize was a scholarship to Chouinard Art Institute, and that was sponsored by Walt Disney. And so what wound up happening was Ted submitted the painting, he won the contest, he won the scholarship, and he received the scholarship from Walt himself. He stood with Walt, shook Walt's hand, received the scholarship, and then he proceeded to start to go to Chouinard when he got a draft notice. And so he wound up, uh, he was, he was getting drafted and instead of going into the army, which was what the draft notice was for, he called up the Navy recruiter at Long Beach, California. And he essentially told them that, uh, he got this draft notice, but his grandfather was in the Navy and his father was in the Navy. And so he wanted to be in the Navy and the guy said, come on over, we'll swear you in tonight. And they swore him into the Navy, and that was it. He he did his three years of service during the Vietnam War. He went over. He was in, in the South China Seas off of Vietnam, and he got an honorable discharge. He came back to the U.S., and he went back to Chouinard to finish his art school training. And in 1970, he got hired at the Disney Studios. And he was mentored by some of the nine old men, John Lounsbury, Eric Larson, uh, Ollie Johnson, and uh, some of the other guys. And, uh, and he went on to become a master special effects animator. So he was already working at the studio for 14 years by the time I got hired. And so we became fast friends, uh, and we were splitting an office in the early 1990s while we were working on beauty and the beast. And he brought in some of these stereo slides of, of Disneyland, you know, cause I was telling him I had never been to Disneyland until 1980. He was telling me, well, all these different things. We used to joke about chicken of the sea and all of this stuff. And he would tell me these great stories. So he brought in these 3d photos. And as I was looking at him, I said to him, I go, man, Ted, you got to put these in a book someday. And that was more than 25 years ago. You know, it was probably close to, yeah, it was like 26, 27 years ago that, that we, we talked about that. So, you know, we, we go through our careers and, you know, he had worked at the company for like, I think, 43 or 44 years and retired. And we, we stayed in touch. 
We'd email each other. We'd talk on the phone. He moved out of Los Angeles, and I still would go visit him every so, you know, a couple times a year. I'd go out and visit him. And uh, on one of those visits in late 2018, um, we got to talking about the 3D slides that he had, and he brought he brought out his viewer, and we were looking at some of them, and. Uh, and I said, Ted, let's do that book. And that's how, that's really how it came about. He said, okay. You know, so we went through his, his collection of photos and we picked out almost a hundred photos and, uh, and I just came up with the concept of wanting to do sort of a walking tour of the park. And so that's, that's how the book is laid out. It's laid out very much like uh, our conversation just uh, unfolded, you know, where you start out actually in uh, outside the berm looking up at the entrance uh, train station and then you're in the town square and then you're down Main Street and then you're into Adventureland and you kind of do this uh, clockwise loop around the park. And and the other interesting thing, as we were laying the book out, I really felt strongly that we needed to have pictures of Walt in there. <laughs> and so I licensed two photographs of Walt. And people may have seen these pictures of Walt, but they've never seen them in 3D. Have they, Michael? No, no, not at all. I've, I, I was going to comment on those photos that you opened the book and closed the book with Walt. Yeah. And that, but and they are they are common photos, but to see them in three D like that, they were they were spectacular. Yeah, and and the digital technology today allows you to take uh, a flat photograph and you can go in uh, and and create a left and right eye view very convincingly. And I think that you know for me, I really wanted to to showcase this was Walt's park. This was Walt's brainchild it was it was his passion and i and again as we were laying out all of these photos many of them from the from the 1950s i just thought my gosh where's walt we got to have walt in here you know so um i just thought it was uh it it it, it really it made the book complete in my mind. Mm -hmm. I agree. I absolutely agree with you. And you do include 3D glasses. Absolutely. In the book. When yeah. you open the book on the inside front cover, there's a pair of glasses in an envelope. Uh, and you can pull those out, put them on. If you wear glasses, I put the 3D glasses on top of my glasses. Okay. And I tuck, I tuck the little arms into my uh, glass uh, arms, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how I look at them. I'm yeah. saying that for Craig's sake. <laughs> oh, I wear glasses too, just not oh, yeah. um, for the videos. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm looking at Craig to the screen. his glasses on like I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh. but so now, really, you know, so so the text I do talk about the ViewMaster and because that, that was my introduction to 3D was, was being able to see far off places in 3D with the ViewMaster, and that's that was what was so great about it. Uh, I talk about that. I talk about Ted's history. Uh, and I talk about a little bit about how, you know, we're displaying these photos because, you know, some, some photo books want to cram as many pictures in as possible, but we really wanted to display each individual picture on its own page. Mm -hmm. 
and with with a nice white border around it and the and and really what that acts as if you can imagine the white border of the page is a wall and the photo is a window and it really helps to enhance the 3d quality of the pictures because it's like you're looking through a window in a wall oh that's fascinating so, yeah and what now where can our listeners pick up your book okay so because of the pandemic michael uh we decided that we're gonna do a, a signed numbered limited edition of the book so ted and i are going to sign 750 copies and we're putting a special holographic emblem that will denote it as one of 750 books that'll be in the book and they can only get the special edition of the book at the oldmillpress.com the oldmillpress.com if you go there and you click on the pre-order. We were hoping that we were going to get the books out by the 31st of August, but we found out a couple of days ago, and I have to, I have to have them update the website. But the um, uh, it's going to be a couple, three weeks before we have the book shipped. Uh, but what I have been doing for people is I've been sending out uh, an update and mm -hmm. letting people know. Just, just as a courtesy, and I think people really respond to that. They're like, "Okay, I don't mind waiting. I'm glad you. I'm glad I'm hearing something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. So we're we're as anxious as anybody to get the book out into the world. And then, you know, if if, uh, if people don't get in on the limited edition, it'll be available on you know all the online retailers and also at local bookstores and i would encourage your listeners to to try and support their uh local independent bookstores who can easily order this book for them excellent well and i already ordered mine through old mill press but i think i'm going to order one for my granddaughter because this is such a unique book it's the most unique book of disneyland i have a lot of books this is the most unique book about disneyland that'll be in my collection you know, Michael, I, I I like to do unique things. I like to do different <laughs> things. And, and and I have to tell you, when I saw all these photographs, I just said, and, and you know, all those photographs, most of them are Ted. You know, that this book wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Ted Kiersey. You know, he, he's, a, he's a friend, a mentor, a colleague of mine from Disney, and just a terrific guy. And And if it wasn't for him, this book wouldn't be there. And now we'll continue our nostalgic look back at Disney with This Week in Disney History. Well, here we are in the week of September 13th. So let's see how we do. I don't know if there's anything about Disneyland this week. Because I wrote this mm. such a long time ago. We'll see. <laughs> anyway. Okay, September 13th. On September 13, 1979, an animator quits Walt Disney Feature Animation and takes a third of the top artists with him. Often controversial, this animator will become Disney's most serious rival since Max Fleischer. What is his name? That is Don Bluth. Absolutely. Don Bluth. I haven't heard much out of him lately. I know he has his own studio still, yeah. but I don't know. 
I mean, it's he did his best work in the late eighties and early nineties, so it's <clears throat> I'm I'm never gonna I, I'm never gonna knock him for not having more longevity because you know, the the what he did make is for people my age is a lot of classics that we still cherish to this day. So Oh yeah. My children loved an American tale. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that what was that dinosaur movie? Land the cute little time. dinosaurs. Yes, and then it's eighteen direct-to-video sequels or yeah. whatever it is. We don't like the but, sequels, just the first one. So. <laughs> first one is cute, but uh, I just remember we we would always go to this. We would we would camp a lot in the summer, and we always went to this place that was a family camping resort and they would have a lot of family activities. And one I dreaded was, uh, was family karaoke night. (laughs) And I can't tell you how many times I heard young children singing off key somewhere out there. I I would just cringe. I I still (laughs) sing it off key usually around once a week. Just for fun. Oh, my. Well, you'd be good at family karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be waiting for my invitation. All right. On September 14th, which original Mouseketeer was inducted to the, into the Walk of Fame in Hollywood, California on September 14th, 1993? The star in category of motion picture is located at 6834 Hollywood Boulevard in front of the Disney Soda Fountain, now operated by Ghirardelli. I'm going to guess Annette just because I don't know how many of the other uh, people might have one. You're correct. It's Annette Finicello, a singer and actress. She was Walt Disney's most popular cast member of the Mickey Mouse Club, the original, and went on to appear in a series of Disney and Beach Party films. Okay, you're on a roll here. Okay, September 15th. What had its grand opening at Walt Disney World's Downtown Disney on September 15th, 1997? Um, I am not sure. Maybe, uh, maybe Cirque du Soleil? Well, it, it was big. It was bigger than Cirque du Soleil. What's bigger than Cirque du Soleil? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I don't know then. It's downtown Disney West Side. Oh, well, so, uh, that is bigger. <laughs> <laughs> this 66 acre edition is Walt Disney World's third shopping, dining, and entertainment zone and features Wolfgang Puck Cafe, House of Blues, Bongo's Cuban Cafe. Virgin Megastore, plus an expanded AMC Pleasure Island 24 theaters. This waterfront district is the largest of the three downtown Disney areas, which includes Pleasure Island and the Marketplace. So how much of all this is still there, Craig? Well, Bongo's is gone. Um, You know... A lot of it. <laughs> Virgin <laughs> Mega Store is gone. Yeah, Virgin. Um, we were talking about that just the the other day, saying Virgin Mega Store was is where Splitsville is now, yeah. and uh, yeah. So it's so. I mean, that area has has completely changed. So House of Blues is basically the only the only thing because then where Wolfgang Puck was, that ended up becoming Haleo. And yeah, Disney Quest obviously is now 
NBA and yeah, that, that area is just so different. Yeah. And of course, Pleasure Island is gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the marketplace is still there. Yeah. Anyway. All right. September 16th. Which Disney theme park closed early on Sunday, September 16th, 2018, as Typhoon Maghut, I guess, struck with winds of 107 miles per hour? Um, I, I'm going to assume that this was Hong Kong. Was this when you were in Hong Kong? It was. That's yeah. the only reason I put it in here. <laughs> <laughs> we were on a Dreams Unlimited travel exclusive adventures by disney trip that we did the japan add-on to tokyo where you could tour tokyo and then see uh, the parks there tokyo disneyland tokyo disney sea and then we hopped over to hong kong and then we went to shanghai but we also went to beijing and and all that it was a remarkable trip um but, uh, yeah, we, we were in this. The funny thing is it hit on the other side of the island. So we didn't get, you know, the brunt of it. The main problem was is that people took boats over to the island. And that was what happened because a lot of the cast members couldn't come to the park. So they shut everything down. I felt terrible because we arrived late in the afternoon that day. And, you know, our Hong Kong correspondent, Hadrian, he um, he was sitting in the lobby. I don't know if he waited there all day or what mm. when we arrived. So I could only talk with him for a couple of hours because he needed to take his transport. I don't know if it was a train or what to get home. Yeah. And then we were going to meet up the next day because a lot of that was a free day. And the typhoon hit. And so I never saw him again. <laughs> so... I I thought I was so sad about that. And um but we walked around, we walked to the different resorts and they, you know, the characters came to the resort hotels and and entertained the children and all that. And the, the hotels are trying to put on, you know, different activities and stuff like that. So they did a good job, you know, trying to do things. Yeah. And um and Adventures by Disney did a superb job of trying to coordinate things because we had booked um, a couple of things. A group of us had booked a couple of special uh, events, like a couple dining events, and they were able to work it in to um, the, the, the rescheduled days that we had left in Hong Kong. So they were great. So anyway, anyway, so yes, I was there. I can say I was in a typhoon. <laughs> okay. All right. September 17th. This actor, comedian, singer, and composer was born on September 17th, 1904, and would grow up to be the voice of the March Hare in Walt Disney's 1951 animated film, Alice in Wonderland. He also lent his voice to the 1946 package film, Make My Music. He narrated the Casey at the Bat segment and Walt Disney's 1950, The Brave Engineer as the narrator who is this person his voice is definitely uh, it's one to remember but i do not know it i don't know jerry it's jerry colonna okay okay he was born as gerardo luigi colonna in boston massachusetts and 
he's remember he was still around when I was a boy. So he was on, you know, all the variety shows. I think he was on McHale's Navy. He had these big googly eyes and this big mustache. So he had very distinctive features. And he's remembered best as sort of this the zaniest of Bob Hope's sidekicks on Bob Hope's popular radio shows and films of the nineteen forties and fifties. Okay. Yeah, so then he was, and then, you know, in the 60s, he was making his rounds on, in television. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay, September 18th. The first television series produced by Walt Disney Attractions debuts in syndication on September 18th, 1998. What is the name of this series? Hmm. Uh, I'll give you a hint. There's a. Sort of a reincarnated version of this that's debuting this month on Disney Plus. I that I'm very excited about. Well, I, I'm assuming it has to deal with Animal Kingdom, but I don't believe I ever saw this. Uh, I don't think I ever saw it either. You're right. It was called Secrets of the Animal Kingdom. It was a syndicated half-hour television series, which may be why we never saw it. Yeah. If it wasn't syndicated where we lived, and it was taped uh, at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Very interesting. I have to look yeah. that up and see if it exists somewhere. I tried to find it on like YouTube, mm-hmm. and nobody seems to have it. Maybe it'll end up on Sam's Disney Diary someday. Maybe, maybe. Seems <laughs> to get all this stuff. Yeah. Um, the Now, The Magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom, that's produced actually by National Geographic. So I'm hoping it's going to have some depth to it. So. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, September 19th, Walt Disney holds what will turn out to be his last press conference on September 19th, 1996. What did he speak about? Did, uh, um, I think you got the date wrong. Not that it's necessarily, that has no impact on it. What Um, did I say? In 1996. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I have it written down, too. It is 1966. I, I figured that's what you meant, but I got caught up on that for a second. I was yeah, like, September 19th, 1966. Did he come back and I didn't realize? Um, <laughs> yes, and he told everybody I'm not frozen. <laughs> oh, I I feel like I know this one. And I, I know it's not, it wasn't Florida Project, but I can't. Yeah, the cat was out of the bag on that yeah. one already. It, well, it was a project that unfortunately never got developed. But it was one of the big ones he was working on when he passed. Hmm. And we have a we have an attraction that came out of this. That's one of your favorites. One of mine too, but we don't have it at Disneyland. Um, uh, um, Mineral King. That's it. Very good. Yeah. Walt Disney spoke about the development of the Mineral King ski resort in Southern California. The Disney sky crown resort will feature skiing an Alpine village, skating rink, a five story hotel, uh, dormitories for young people and restaurants. And, After Walt's passing, plans will be blocked when critics and environmentalists feel the untouched land would be desecrated, and Congress will eventually vote to turn Mineral King into a part of Sequoia National Park. 
And I did an episode about Mineral King in my 60 Years of Disneyland series for our Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition. And it was amazing how environmentally responsible Walt worked to be with this resort from the design of the resort to recycling to transportation in and out of the resort. So it would have been remarkable had it been built. And it got far along in the development process. But yes, the Country Bear Jamboree came out of it. It was designed for Mineral Kings so that there would be family entertainment uh, after people, you know, were done with the slopes in the evening. And he wanted it to be open year round. So there was going to be, you know, summer activities there as well, which Country Bear Jamboree would have also been a part of. Well, I always enjoy our shows when we take a walk down the the pasts of various theme parks. And I enjoy vintage photos of the parks. And to see photos of Disneyland in 3D brings the, the Disneyland to life in a way no other book has been able to do. So I'm very excited about this book. Yeah, I, uh, I I didn't tell you before we recorded, but Dave was kind enough to send Michael uh, a early look version of it, so Michael could have a better idea. But it was only in Michael's name, so I couldn't actually I couldn't actually log in to to see it. But I have my my pre order for one of the autograph copies from mm-hmm. from Dave to that will hopefully ship ship real soon so i can get my hands on it and and look myself but i there's every time we have dave on the show i'm instantly sold on whatever oh, he's yeah, working me on too. It, it, there is no there's no effort in in him trying to sell it because it's you know we know that he he is an expert at compiling these books and doing the research and i the Claude Coates book yet. It's not even up for pre-order yet. And I'm already sold on that one as well, too. So. Oh, I am, too. I'm so <laughs> excited about that book. I've always wanted to do an episode on Claude Coates. I've talked about it for years. And but and his books are always of such high quality, mm-hmm. you know, and and yeah, and he sent me an encrypted PDF and that on every page said was just for my viewing with my name but but the pictures were you know it how they would appear without your 3d glasses so um anyway so uh so i'm looking forward to i'm I'm gonna try i do i know somewhere i have the red and is it red and green glasses red and blue red and blue i know i have a pair of paper ones somewhere around the house i have to find them and see if i can if it'll work on the computer with the PDF oh, he sent yeah. me, yeah, all that, but I think it, it might because I feel yeah. like they've they used to sometimes, at least in the nineties, they would sometimes send out like the three D glasses and and would be for like little special things, whether it was on TV or or somewhere else. So it, there's a chance it could work. Yeah, I'll have to try it. Let you know. So. But yeah, so definitely we'll have Craig will have links in the show notes to where you can pre-order mm-hmm. Dave's book. Mm-hmm. 
And I think I, I originally pre-ordered it on Amazon, so I have to cancel that order because I also bought it through Old Mill Press to get the autographed copy. Yeah. And it they just updated that release date to like mid-October on Amazon when they're shipping it. So I'm assuming, though, Dave will be shipping his out earlier. Yeah. Since it, he already has them, I think, or close to it. I think it was close to it. And I'll be honest, too. It's it, it, Amazon has not yet dropped the price. You know, they usually do that with books right before. So I think Amazon was shipping for $61 for the book, mm-hmm. which is, you know, definitely pricey. But through Old Mill Press, it's $52 with free shipping. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a better price than Amazon. Plus, it's a signed numbered first edition that there's only 750 copies of. So uh, it's, you know, you have to go that way. And I should say seven, well, at least 747 because one of those was in the auction. And then I know I have one and you have one. So uh, there's, you know, it, it's it's the way to go. Get them, get them yeah. through Old Mill Press. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, you can access our show at DisneyUnplugged.com. You can find Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Mm-hmm.